Okay. Welcome back. Bienvenidos to Diferente once again. Thank you so much for being patient with me throughout the last few months, which have been nothing short of a little bit stressful and turbulent. I've already shared a few of the reasons why. And if you miss them, then go back and listen to the last few episodes. But we're now back up and rolling. And we're actually almost done with season one of Diferente. In fact, this week is our one-year anniversary. Congratulations, everybody. We made it to one year. I'm so grateful for all of you tuning in and listening to Diferente. I'm grateful for the fact that you have joined me in this journey and that you continue to tune in on the regular. I know that sometimes you get behind on the episodes and you know what? That's all good because I understand how it is. I follow like 30 podcasts that I love and I can't always listen to them every week, but that's okay because the most important thing is that you come back and you listen whenever you have a moment. So thank you again for your support. And don't forget that you can share this episode and all of Diferentes episodes with your friends. Or you can also join me on social media at Life on Instagram. Anyway, let's get to this week's episode. My guest is comedian, actor, and daily show correspondent Roy Wood Jr. His latest comedy special is called No One Loves You. And it's not only hilarious to me, it's thought-provoking. Here's the thing. We love to act like all these good cops just going to all step up and do the right thing together. Please. Most people don't do the right thing for the right reason. They do the right thing for the right price. I promise you, if you started giving cops 100000 to snitch on other cops, they would be arresting each other at roll call. You wouldn't even make it out the police station in the morning. Put your hands up, Sanchez. And that's a little clip from the special, which is on Comedy Central. So make sure you guys check it out if you haven't already. The links are in the show notes. Roy's comedy has entertained millions across stage, television, and radio. In 2017, he was named the new host of Comedy Central's storytelling series, This Is Not Happening, which will actually launch a fifth season next year. We talked about his life while growing up in the South, cultural stereotypes, and that thing that almost ruined his career before it started. Bienvenidos. Welcome to Diferente. My name is Maribel Quesada-Smith. I'm an expert at questioning everything who wants to bring more color into your life. I'll be coming to you every week with a little humor and a mountain of passion to share with you experiences and lessons in life, culture, creativity, and business that will inspire all of us to explore different perspectives. Don't be surprised if you find yourself motivated to shake things up. That's known to be a side effect of the Diferente life, and it's contagious. Now let's get to it. Roy, thank you again so much for being on Diferente. It's a pleasure to have you. My pleasure. I'm just here so I can learn how to pronounce Diferente. <laughs> Did I say it right that time? Diferente. Muy bien. Yeah, I'm Muy getting bien. there. I'm getting there. So here's the thing. I want to start with like a little word association to kind of get warmed up. So I'm going to give you a word and just give me the first phrase that comes to mind. So here we go. You ready? Ready. Donald Trump. Asshole. <laughs> McDonald's. Delicious. Florida A&M. Life-saving. Oh, how so? I have to explore that. You have people that look out for you. 
and make sure that you stay on the straight and narrow. And thankfully, I had that at Florida a and And to this day, I really believe if I'd have been at another school, I probably would not have finished college. Oh, wow. Okay. All right. Well, we'll get back to that later. Let me continue with the word association. <laughs> All right. Radio shows. Hosting them or being on them? Either. Hosting radio shows was fun, but unfocused. Okay. Fatherhood. Challenging. The South. Um, home. Hospitality. Warmth. Serenity. Okay. Last word. Diferente. Oh, different. Discerning. I guess I'm just defining what the word actually means. But <laughs> Okay. I want to learn a little bit about you growing up in Alabama, and I'm sure people listening want to hear about it as well. So tell me about your experiences growing up there. And I don't really know where to start. It was very much a fun experience for me. Birmingham was, we didn't move there until I was in the fourth grade. And so, you know, I grew up around, the way I've tried to explain it to people is that I grew up in the best part of gang territory, which is really deep into gang territory. For, at least for where I live, was halfway peaceful. There weren't a lot of shootings on my block, if any, you know. You're surrounded by it. The stuff happened. It was there. It was always omnipresent. But I grew up, you know, in a two-parent home. My dad was there. My mom was there. Always had my parents on top of me about the school and grades, which I had decent grades. I was in the gifted program up until about high school. And then that's where things kind of took a left turn. And then I was just like, look, I'm just trying to get out of college. Let me just do whatever I can <laughs> to get out of high school <laughs> just to get to college. Yeah. I just got to get the hell out of here. It's kind of what it was like. You know, I, I played sports. I was in church choir for a couple of years as in Boy Scouts. Oh, like you were a singer. No, wow. I just said I was in the choir. <laughs> <laughs> There's okay. the difference. <laughs> you know, I was there for, for a year or two. And then well, the choir director said something really rude to me and it just kind of pissed me off. And so... <laughs> It turned me off on, I don't know, I, I went to my mom and I was like, yo, what's the deal with this getting into heaven shit? How does this work? I didn't say it like that, but basic energy was, all right, go to church, be a good person. Go to church on Sunday? Cool. Choir practices on Wednesdays. I'm going to start going to baseball. So <laughs> I'm forever straight on going back to choir rehearsal. And my choir director said to me, basically, you can choose to sing your praises to your Lord and Savior, or you can burn in hell and go play baseball. And I was like, Oh, you wow. Know yeah, that's yeah. how he presented it to me because I was showing up for choir. I was showing up for a youth choir, but not showing up for choir rehearsal. I'm like, Man, we sing the same. We got five songs, and every Sunday we <laughs> sing three of them. We ain't learned no <laughs> new songs. So, what the hell is he doing? Why am I here? I don't want to keep coming to this. I'm missing soccer yeah. and baseball. So, you know, I say all of that to say I did a little bit of everything. And that was probably the best thing about my childhood is that I did everything. I went everywhere. I, yeah. I did stuff around the neighborhood for money. And I did a lot of yard work. That was my thing. I was always mm -hmm. figuring out a way to make a buck. I got sent to summer school my ninth grade year. Well, I didn't get sent. I sent myself. <laughs> and so... Summer school was at this high school around the corner, West End High School, which it's not there anymore. But at the time, it was one of the bigger high schools in the city. So summer school would go from 8 to 12 every day. And we would all walk and go 
to this corner store, you know, get a soda and some candy or whatever on the way home. And there was a guy in the corner store that was always sweeping the parking lot. And he always had to stop sweeping the parking lot when kids came in the store to watch us, to keep us from shoplifting. So Mm. he could never finish sweeping the parking lot because the rush would come, you know? And so he would be Uh. stuck in there for an hour or two and then two, three more things would happen. But no matter what, by the end of his shift, he had to have swept the parking lot. (laughs) So I peeped this and then I go to him and I say, hey, man. How often do you sweep this parking lot? He goes, you got to sweep it once a week to get the leaves out. I go, well, I notice every time I come here, you're struggling with it. How about you give me $10 and I sweep the parking lot for you? Your boss won't know and you get credit for it. And so he said, well, I can't give you $10. That's a lot of money. But what I can do instead is give you $10 credit in this store. Uh I go, okay, that's a fair counter. So I would get... $10 $10 worth of stuff. And it was crazy is that when you're like 12, 13 years old, $10 is a lot of money to spend in a gas station just on food. Especially back then. Yeah. In the 90s. Candy yeah. bars for 50 cents. So how many candy bars can you eat <laughs> every week? How much stuff? So what I figured out was, oh, well, I'll get $5 worth of stuff that I like. And then I'll get $5 worth of stuff that I could sell and make $10 profit. Mm -hmm. And so I essentially still made the same $10, only now I was selling the stuff at summer school during the week. Oh, you flipped it. Yeah, so (laughs) I would take the $10 credit and then take that $10 worth of credit of candy and take that to school and sell it and just ran like a little candy store out of my backpack. (laughs) And that's how, and that was like one of the first summers of like making a little bit of money, you know, on the side. And once you get a taste of that as a kid, there's an independence that comes with that that you become addicted to. It sounds like you were pretty independent from a young age then. Did you have siblings? I'm the only child by my mother. I grew up alone. I have some halves, but, okay. you know, pretty much day in, day out, I was alone. I have two younger half siblings that lived with us for some time, but not long enough to have that brotherly di- sibling dynamic. Like we didn't have fights over the remote. And, That never happened. I just think that a lot of it boiled down to, you know, my mom was always gone. She was working. She was in night school. She was grad school and law school. And she just never stopped working. So money wasn't always there. And I just figured out, I figured out at an early age that, you know, to some degree, money was the key to a lot of things and a lot of headaches going away. So that's just where I put my focus. That's interesting. Did you guys travel outside of Alabama when you were growing up? Did you get to see other places or other cities? Not often. There were some times, you know, you get to see some stuff. Most of my road trips as a child consisted of going to Mississippi to visit my mother's side of the family. And occasionally we would go to Chicago or Indianapolis to visit someone on my father's side or maybe Atlanta. But for the most part, we didn't travel much outside of the South uh, when I was a kid. Family road trips were never really a thing. My parents' schedules were so polar opposites. Yeah, that was just never really, there just weren't many opportunities for that. Because I've heard you talk about the differences between Northern racism and Southern racism. And I was wondering, like, when did you start noticing those differences? Can you talk about that? 
I didn't notice a lot of that until I started comedy. That was when oh, I really okay. started getting around people more and being in situations where you could be susceptible to racism. Okay. Like once I left for college in 96, I pretty much didn't leave the South again until I went to New York my junior year of college. And that was to do open mics and stuff. So I just never really came in contact with people. It wasn't until I started later on in my career, you start getting up north, you're traveling, and the truck stops. There's a weird look or a double take, but nobody will say anything. Whereas, you know, in the South, you know where somebody stands. Like, there's no, there's no questioning whether or not you're wanted in a place in the South where I don't feel like How you so? always have that luxury. Somebody will just say, get out, or we don't serve you. Or In the 90s, you had experiences like that still? Oh, yeah. Like, I remember, and this is Tallahassee. This is 2000, 2001. And I remember being a server, walking up to a table to greet the table. You know, white family of four, father, son, two daughters, whatever. Greet the table, and I'm your server. And they just wouldn't say anything. Like, literally wouldn't say a word. I'd set the plates down, keep it moving. Be back in the back doing some work, and one of the waitress, a white waitress, will come up to me. Hey, just so you know, they asked me to take over table twenty-two, and that's just what it was. And we would swap mm-hmm. a table to the point where racism became so commonplace that you don't even trip on it. That's just what they are, and that's sad. But that's the world they got to live in. So mm-hmm. white servers would have to take over tables of white customers in my section. It didn't happen often. I don't want you to think this was an everyday thing. Yeah, but yeah. once or twice a year, you'd get the guy with the white power tattoo across his knuckles. And, and at the end of the day, I'm a businessman. He's not going to tip me. So why would I serve him? That's a waste of table. That's a waste of space. Everyone loses. Yeah. So I got to be here. So I may as well be making money. That's how I looked at it. You know, that's the type of stuff yeah. that you would, you know, sometimes have to deal with. So I know that you went to Florida A&M. Why did you pick Florida A&M as your college? My mom went there. My father taught there. So I figured there'd be some level of a network of support. And also the baseball team sucked. So (laughs) I figured I could walk on to the baseball team. That was my big dream was to play Mm -hmm. baseball. And so I thought, you know, in a roundabout way, if I go to this college and wow them with my baseball skills, (laughs) I was wrong. (laughs) That did not work out at all. You were not welcomed on the team? No, I sucked. So, like, just because you're good in high school, and I wasn't that good. I was just all right. Oh. Yeah, I ran into a wall very fast. So then you changed the course of your career pretty quickly, because I know you mentioned earlier you had the experience of stealing the jeans and almost going to jail. And is that what catapulted you into doing something different? Yeah. Thinking that I was going to go to prison changed my approach to life. It's no different than having a gun drawn on you and someone pulling the trigger and the gun misfired. The legal system pulled a gun on me and it misfired. You thought you were going to prison over jeans? Yeah, that's what my lawyer told me. And when you look at the facts of the case and everything and credit cards were involved and all of that stuff, like there's, oh. there's enough in there to where the people who don't know, they have what's called sentencing guidelines. And so the sentencing guidelines basically are people who commit this crime traditionally get this sentence, period. Mm. So this is the normal sentence for people who commit this crime. And so for the charges I was facing, I was looking at like five years or 
whatever. And he was like, you'll probably do a year. You might get out early on good behavior. So when you hear that, that's something that sticks with you. And so I go, all right, well, I'm going to prison. Let me try everything I've ever wanted to do. And comedy just happened to be on the list. I've always wanted to do comedy. I've always had an itch for comedy, but I just never had the guts until I almost had everything snatched away from me. And so then that was the catalyst. Oh, wow. So it wasn't like out of the blue. I mean, you you knew that you wanted to try something different, I just but never you didn't had the have guts. the guts. I just didn't have the guts. So it took almost losing everything mm. to put me in the space of like, oh, okay, I should do this now. <laughs> and that was, you know, it was easily the best thing that ever happened to me. So what saved you? Because I'm guessing you didn't end up going to prison. Oh, hell no. I got probation. Like that's, oh, nice. you know, where okay. I really feel like I, I loved up and didn't have to deal with that. So I really feel like that was something that put me on the right path. I know it sounds cliche, but it's the <laughs> truth, you know? So that's kind of where the journey began. And so then I was off to the races and doing comedy at that point mm. and still in school. But at that point, as far as I was concerned, you know, for all intents and purposes, I was a full-time comedian. It just so happened that I was in college because I didn't have enough gigs. Did your parents want you to finish college? Before you yeah, went full-time? Yeah, my father or? was dead at this point. My dad died when I was in high school, but my mom was adamant against. And she should have been. You avoid jail, and now you tell your mom, yeah, I'm going to do a job that only 800 to 1,000 people in the country can do sustainably for income. <laughs> Everyone else who does this occupation has another job. But there's a small percentage that do this for a living and pay all of their bills. And you know what? I think I can be one of those people. I mean, you're trying to sell this dream to a woman who has a law degree and works in higher education. And, you know, my mom is old school. My mom marched for for civil rights. You know, my mom was, she was in the first group of Black people to integrate Delta State University. My mom got spit on. She got called nigger. She, she did a lot of stuff so that people after her could have a better existence. And so you go through all of that and then you have your child tell you, I was going to be a comedian. It's like, what? No. <laughs> right. I got chased by it's the like, Klan so you could go be a doctor. <laughs> like, yeah. that's. Yeah. She had higher dreams for you, I guess. <laughs> yeah. But the problem, I think, was that I feel like parents, they're trying to dictate your destination. And they can't dictate that. You can only give your child the courage and skills so that they, when they make the jump, they have all the tools they need once they are in the air. But you don't get to tell them where they land. My mom gave me everything I needed in terms of work ethic and drive and focus. And that stuff all was very important. People skills. Yeah, because you had the confidence, too, to try it. Yeah. But not just the confidence. I had to have a plan. I had to have a plan. Mm -hmm. My mom had a plan. My mom didn't just, I'm going to go to law school and that's it. My mom... (laughs) legitimately was looking at, uh, if I go to this school, this many years, this many hours. I remember her giving me rides to school in the morning and she would be listening to Bill Handel on the law tapes. She was listening to books on tape, on cassettes. Like back in the day, a book on tape was like 12 cassettes. Oh, yeah. And so there was a focus, there was an intent, there was a drive in her. And so that's something that I always, I'm very thankful that I have parents who who had a work ethic because it was something that 
kind of came secondhand when I really needed it. It was second it was second nature, you know, even now to this day. Well, I mean, you can tell that you came from a very like focused family for sure. And I think that's so interesting that you say that you can't really control the the child's like you said, parents want to control the outcome, but you really can't. You can only control what goes in, how you raise them and and hopefully raise them to make the right decisions and have the right outlook. I want to try something different. And I think I'm, you know, I told you this in the email. So, you know, I married into a Black family and that's why I'm always very inquisitive about Black culture, especially, you know, since this is Black History Month that we're doing the interview in. So I always find it so funny that you never know like what people think about a culture until you're like embedded in that other culture. I don't know if that makes sense, but like mm-hmm. when my husband and I met, like my husband, Doug and I, I had to explain to him that I was not Spanish just because I spoke Spanish, like even just simple things like that. And he told me he had never met a Mexican person like me, meaning like someone who was educated and career focused. Do you know any Mexican people outside of me? Maybe I should ask with that question before we move forward. Yeah, I know a couple. I know they're, they're all professional, though. You know, mm-hmm. it's all professional relationships like Al Madrigal, Cristela Alonzo. Cristela especially, because I've known her back in our comedy struggle days and doing college gigs and stuff. Did you grow up with any Mexican people in Alabama by any chance? Absolutely not. Okay. Birmingham is very black and white. Birmingham proper is predominantly black. It's 75. I believe at that time it's 70, but I think now Birmingham proper might be 80% black. Every oh, city wow. school is predominantly black. The school I went, the high school I went to, Ramsey, at the time was half and half white and black. Mm-hmm. And that's how they recruited the school to give it that racial makeup. But then white people, for the most part, stopped applying and just went to schools out in the county. I didn't meet my first Latino until the eighth grade. The first Asian I met was in middle school in the sixth grade. Oh, wow. I met an Indian. I met a Russian. You know, like these mm-hmm. English as a second language classes and everything. Uh-huh. That's where I met a lot of students. Because like they always had like the, the class for the foreigners, like who weren't <laughs> quite fluent in English yet. So they would put you off in the side class up the hall uh-huh. where mm-hmm. you learned English all day. And then slowly over the course of a year or two, you would be, I don't know if matriculated is the word, but. Integrated. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. Integrated. (laughs) And so a lot of these people were first generation immigrants or children of immigrants. And so that was my introduction to foreigners and anyone that wasn't black or white. I went to Mm. an all black elementary school. When else am I going to see a Latino? They don't live in the hood. and They weren't there yet. And I and I know a big part of it was. There was a Latino boom in the South when the Olympics were announced in Atlanta in 96. I think 96 was the Olympics in Atlanta. And so for the three to four years prior to that, there was a lot of construction. And a lot of Latinos came over to Atlanta and Birmingham for some of the construction jobs. So from that, there was a boom. I couldn't imagine Birmingham without Latinos now. Like It's just such a normal thing now. But oh, okay. if we're talking late 80s and for where I was raised, there was no intersection of those cultures. I'm not saying they mm. weren't there. I'm just saying they weren't in West End. And when I did mm. see them, it was at school or when we played soccer games, stuff like that. Yeah, that's so interesting then. So then 
it wasn't until maybe you went to what LA that you kind of started getting to know more people of different cultures? Yeah, college a little bit, but college just taught me there was more black people than regular black. <laughs> and Oh, okay. That's interesting. Because Florida AM is a black school. It's a black college. But blackness is many prisms. Never met a Jamaican, never met a Haitian, never met a Dominican, never met a Cuban. None of that until college. Mm -hmm. Had literally physically in the flesh never seen a Cuban person. That's what Alabama was. Alabama was just black people and white people. And a couple of immigrant kids up the hall in that classroom you never go into. You see them at PE and they were pretty cool. And like it was almost like a, I don't want to say fetish, but it was this weird novelty thing. Like, oh, have you seen the new <laughs> ESL student? Yeah. <laughs> She's from Slovenia. Where's that? I don't know. It just looks like a different type of white to me. <laughs> so then on your first experiences with people of different cultures, like did you have some stereotypes that you had to confront? Specifically, maybe like when you first started meeting Mexican people. No, not really, because stereotypes are influenced by having been, you need to have been exposed to that group enough to have agreed upon stereotypes. And you need to have seen them on TV or been exposed to their uh -huh. culture somehow. And this is pre-internet. So what do I know about Mexicans other than Cheech and Chong? That's sad. No, that I'm just being thing. real. But I'm being real. Yeah. When yeah. else? When else was it on TV? When else was there something that would even remotely... Paul Rodriguez, comedian Paul Rodriguez, was probably the first delve into Latin American comedy. And I feel like comedy and sports is where we first satiate our curiosities about another culture. It's the it's the safest entry point into learning about someone. And I think he was from Guatemala, but the first Latino I met was a gentleman from our ESL classes in middle school in seventh grade. Uh, this kid by the name of Marvin Martinez, and he was from Guatemala. And Marvin played on our soccer team. His English was very poor. We understood each other on a base level. But when it came to playing soccer, oh, my God. Like, mm. he was great. We dominated. We Man, we was whooping them white schools' ass up and down the freeway. <laughs> and that became, like, that entry point of, okay, well, what does it mean to be Latin? What is this all about? Well, I know one. And he's this. And that's why when, you know, when white people get caught up in that, I have a black friend. I really believe. <laughs> I'm not racist. I have a black friend. I truly believe a lot of white people just aren't in spaces where there are a lot of black people. Yeah. If you just live in a certain part of Boston and only hang out in a certain place and only do certain things, you're only going to see the same type of people over and over again. I think it's so funny that you bring up the point of exposure. So like you didn't have any preconceived stereotypes because you didn't really see any Mexican people online or on TV or maybe one or two. So there was no representation. Yeah, but it can be a double edged sword because I was talking to my cousins, you know, I'm Mexican, like from Mexico. Uh, most of my family's still in Mexico. So I talked to them about, you know, race and things like that, because they don't really get confronted with those issues very often. And I wanted to get their take on stereotypes of African-Americans. And I asked them, I said, well, what are some of the questions that you would ask somebody as you get to know them that is of the African-American culture? And my, one of my cousins was like, well, you know, 
most of what we know is what's on TV and like popular culture. So I guess I would want to know, like, is racism really still a thing? Or are people just making a big deal out of it because everyone's so sensitive nowadays? <laughs> <laughs> but that's how they no, think. Real. <laughs> because they only see it on TV, you know? Like, they, they don't know if it's being played up like a stereotype or if it's real. And <laughs> I had the same reaction. I was like, oh, no, it's, it's real. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's very real. <laughs> Oh, but that's, you know, that's like that double-edged sword. You, on one end, you have no, no examples. And then the examples that you do have are either very extreme or very stereotypical. Yeah, the only one I had was Cheech and Chong, which is literally like, oh my God. Like, it's just, yeah, bro, we get it, bro, yeah. <laughs> oh, you know, the other exposure we had to Latinos was WWF, Razor Ramon. WWF wrestling well wwe now but wwf wrestling was very much the most extreme of every single culture you had the russian you had the iranian terrorist iron sheet guy you had junkyard dog a black man who literally lives in a junkyard and then shows up to wrestle hacksaw jim duggan who was basically a hillbilly from a trailer park but there was this one guy razor ramon and we always thought it was cool because of Scarface to try and walk around the school talking like Razor Ramon. We would talk with it slow and I talk like this Chico. And I would always say the word Chico. I say Chico. And it, like that was it. That was the only exposure we had. So. Yeah. But see, you said Latino. Do you know if he was from any specific country or his parents? No, from- because the w- no, the WWF kept everything very general. They never said what in real mm-hmm. life. I think the gentleman is Cuban who played Razor Ramon. But like in 80s wrestling, like, no, you're just the Hispanic dude. Like, that's how they just put you in a bucket. Iron Sheik represented all brown people from the Middle East. That was your guy. That's all we got for you. We're not getting into specificities of nationality. This episode is sponsored by Social Mosaic Communications, a branding boutique founded on the idea of embracing your diferente. Go to socialmosaic.us to start creating with purpose. Now let's get back to the show. So I'm going to transition into talking about your career a little bit more. We're going to kind of fast forward. I know you went to Florida A&M. You left Florida A&M, started in radio, did radio for what, 10 years, I think? Yeah, I did radio at the same time that I was on the road. I never stopped doing either job because there was opportunities for growth in both. And I felt like one fed the other. So it just seemed natural to try and do both as best I could. Yeah. So, I mean, that's kind of what I did. I just kind of worked the road Mm -hmm. a little bit and... The general protocol was if the gig was less than five hours from Birmingham, I would drive back that day so I could do morning radio the next day. And I wasn't getting paid any money, mm-hmm. but you know, I'll never forget it. The guy, Samuel Mack, who was the host of the show, he would pay me quarterly out of his bonus. You know, radio DJs get a bonus every three months based on where they oh, are. Oh, you didn't have an actual salary? Not when I first started. No, for the first oh. two years, I didn't make a dime in radio wow but i did it every day Mm. and you know it was an opportunity it was a job title i had prank phone calls i could sell cds at the local stores so 
again, you know, you know, it's all back to, you know, sweeping at the gas station theory. You still have an opportunity to make a little bit of money and get some growth. Yeah, absolutely. And then you went to L.A. What took you to L.A.? I was just bored with the South. I've <laughs> done the South for nine years at this point. And at this point, it was just not, I don't want to say not fun, but I'd done everything I could do. And these bookers were moving the goalposts constantly. And they go, oh, you need a TV credit to get more money and get a promotion to headliner. I go get a TV credit and then they start double clutching on giving me a promotion. So it is what it is. <laughs> and LA provided more opportunities as far as your standup or as far as TV in it general? It's challenge, it's growth. It was this thing where I feel like to, if you have dreams, you have to go where the dreamers are. Mm. Most of the people that you hang around, if you're a dreamer, you're in the 5%. If you succeed at it, you're in the 2%. So just to be in that 5 once you identify that you're of the 5%, then you have to go to where those other people are, you know, because mm -hmm. otherwise I feel like you're just going to be around people who are going to drag you down because they don't believe in themselves. So why would they believe in you? It's almost like birds of a feather. I hate to use that cliche, but like yes. if you're not surrounded by people who are driven like you are, then yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You're going to be held back. So fast forward a few years, I'm guessing, uh, you auditioned for The Daily Show. And where were you? Do you remember the day that you received the notification that you had landed that gig? I was in Hong Kong. Oh, okay. When I got the call for the audition, I was on tour with Wendy Williams. And I got a call on a Thursday night to do a Friday morning audition. And the way the logistics laid out, I was going to have to leave the tour for a day. And when you're on tour with someone, there's a chemistry and a synergy. And the opening act is very important on bigger tour stops. Like, it's a meal, essentially. And the opening comedians are part of the meal. So when you change the opening part of the show, it can affect the headline if they're not out there doing their job. So, you know, I went to Wendy Williams about it. And, you know, her people, thankfully, they said, go, go do the audition. And I went and did the audition. And I finished up the rest of the tour. Didn't hear anything for about two weeks. I left for a trip to Hong Kong. And then, basically, the, the way the logistics laid out, when I got back from my Hong Kong trip, I would have had four days to pack my entire apartment and move to L.A. They give you two oh. weeks. But I was stuck wow. in Hong Kong on a contract, so I couldn't oh. leave. And I needed that money from Hong Kong <laughs> to facilitate the move. So I couldn't just bounce the way I wanted to. And so, you know, thankfully, my girlfriend, a bunch of friends, they essentially packed my whole apartment for me while I was in China. And I got home with just enough time to come and check everything and see everything. And next thing I know, I'm in a U-Haul and I'm headed to, headed to New York City. What was the first thing that went on your mind when you heard you got the job? Delete my tweets. <laughs> <laughs> Why? That was the first thing. I mean, even back in 2015, people were still getting in trouble for saying dumb stuff that might have been okay at the top. <laughs> Y'all wasn't going to get me. <laughs> it's not like I was saying a lot of crazy stuff, but, you know, at the end of the day, it was still, I was thankful and then nervous. And nervous is good. I believe mm -hmm. that fear keeps you honest. That's funny that you mentioned that you deleted your tweets 
or that that was your thought? Yeah, that's, I was like, oh my God, what have I said? Thank <laughs> <laughs> Latin said a lot, but like, it's just, you just one of those things where you just don't lose this job. <laughs> that's true because I feel like there's a lot of unfounded stuff that gets put out on the internet. And I'm not saying that you did that, but I, I do think that a lot of people in their writing and their comedy, whatever, they say things and they don't necessarily fact check them. And I don't know about you. I feel like you're pretty conscious. So do you feel like it's your responsibility to fact check the stuff that you talk about in your comedy? Absolutely. No, but see, we're talking about two different things. Here. We're talking about what is law and what is real versus conformity to public opinion and thought. So I give you a good example. I was on Stephen Colbert a couple of years ago, and I made and I said something in support of the LGBTQ community. And someone on Twitter immediately bit my head off and said, "It's LGBTQIA." <laughs> you now, missed two letters. <laughs> I didn't know. I just didn't yeah. know, and it wasn't yeah. like I did it out of place of maliciousness. It was just I didn't know. But now that I know, I say IA. But then there's other people okay. that say IA plus. So you, you, when you get into stuff like that, yeah. you're not going to always make everyone happy. You're not always going to be on tune with what is PC. I'm now receiving word that the word lame is considered disrespectful to members of what? the disabled community. There are a lot of people oh. in the disabled community that do not appreciate the word lame. And I don't know if this is a fair analogy, but I believe it's their new N word. What? Yeah. For oh. you to call something lame, it's like when you call something gay. Like, that's gay. Oh. Like, to say that, which was something that used to be a thing that is now no longer a thing because people spoke out about it. So I have to respect the word lame with the same energy that I did any other statement that other groups of marginalized people feel makes them feel some sort of way. Oh, do you feel stressed that you have to, like, constantly be tiptoeing a line? Like... I don't know. I mean, you're a performer, but you're also a comedian. So I'm not stressed. If you're mad about it and you don't want to give me a place to correct myself and do better, and there's nothing I can do to fix that. But if you're willing to give me the space to learn and absorb and then go out and be better, then we'll be all right. That person yeah. who corrected me about Colbert, I'm sure that they don't follow me. I'm sure they're not a fan of my comedy anymore because of that one thing I said, but they're not taking into consideration that people grow, people evolve, people change. We have to give people space to be better. And if your outrage won't allow that, then it's not helping anything. Yeah, but I feel like it's so hard as a creative like yourself, when you're putting stuff out there, it's like, I don't know about you, but I feel like sometimes I have to constantly be checking to make sure that I'm saying the right thing, that I'm not offending anyone. That I, And it makes it kind of hard to be creative. <laughs> yeah. But you also have to some degree create what you want and what you believe is funny. Without being afraid. Without being afraid of that. Because otherwise you're constantly going to be kowtowing to other people's beliefs. And you're always going to be trying to create stuff that's within the margins of, all right, do y'all like it? All right, do y'all like this? All right, what about now? How are you growing? You ain't learning nothing in that regard. Yeah. And ultimately, like, you're not catering to everybody. Your audience isn't everybody. So that's how you have to look at it. I mean, you're, you're bound to piss some people off, I guess, in your journey. Do you feel like your comedy is inspiring more thoughtful conversations about race and privilege? 
I don't get to dictate that. I don't think about mm. it. It's not my place. Okay. I mean, all I'm here to tell y'all, the only thing I've ever tried to do with my comedy is present points of view that people may not have considered. And that's always my goal. If I can do that and make you think differently, then I've done what I needed to do. And there was a joke that I did on my first hour special about how, like someone, someone's trying to preach to me about conservation and recycling and how you need to recycle and don't use a bag when you go in the store. When you leave the store, don't, don't take a bag. And I'm trying to explain to them, I have to have a bag. I'm a black man in America. I will be accused of stealing if I don't have a bag. You got to bring your own bags then. (laughs) Yeah, but I don't even like doing that because I don't want you thinking I'm putting something in the bag. Oh, see, I feel the same way. When I bring my bags into the grocery store, Doug is always like, put the stuff in the bags while you're shopping. And I'm like, no, they're going to think I'm going to try and steal it. (laughs) Yeah. If I walk into a store with an item in my possession that is also sold at the store that I'm walking into, I hold it up in the air as I walk in the store so that it's blatantly on camera. Yes, me too. If I walk into a Walgreens drinking a Coca-Cola, I hold that Coca-Cola in the air as I walk into the Walgreens. And those are the type of things you have to think about. So, you know, I'm not ever trying to, this will be the joke that solves racism. Yeah. I don't write with that in mind. It's just look at the world a little differently. And if I do that, then I've done something, but I've never set out with that as the goal. How do you keep going? Like what drives you to keep going when you're dealing with, I mean, you are now in a such, such a higher level of comedy where you're probably getting constantly critiqued, I'm guessing, or trolled on the internet. It doesn't bother me anymore. It used to for a minute. But I think what happened in 2010, uh, Last Comic Standing made us made us live tweet. It was the early days of live tweeting a television program and interacting with the uh, mm-hmm. with the audience, with the fans. Yeah. And so in real time, you had people saying some of the most hateful stuff that you could ever imagine having said to you. And this was every week for three hours. Because you had the East Coast feed, then you had the West Coast feed. You had the live tweet, the West Coast feed, too. So it's just people saying you're not funny, you're ugly, you're an N-word, like just everything. It's just being The N-word? Dang. It's the internet. Anything goes. And so it galvanized me to a way. And then also before that, I had prank phone calls on YouTube. And I did morning radio. And people call you every day and tell you you're not funny or you suck or... We don't like you or whatever. Like, that's just, that's the ethos. So that's just the internet. That's what people do. So once you understand that, 90% of hateful stuff is people having their own self-resentment that's manifesting itself by projecting their own self-hate onto you. They don't bother you anymore. That's interesting. Yeah. I never thought about it that way. You just get shit on long enough that just one day you just don't care anymore. And if you're not getting shit on, then you're not doing it right. <laughs> That's yeah, what I think, too. Comedians have this unrealistic expectation of everyone loving them. And it's like, come on, man. Mm. What kind of idiot are you to, to think that everyone is supposed to love you? That's not how it goes. People in general, I think, yeah. are beholden to that belief. Like, 
that everyone should love you. And when they don't, we get so upset and almost like freeze and don't want to do anymore or don't want to put ourselves out there anymore because of the fear of embarrassment. But embarrassment to who? A bunch of strangers who are going to forget. Nobody remembers who they booed. So (laughs) even if they hate you, you're not going to be remembered. So it's a chance to go do it again. Yeah, that's true. I'm sure you had some mentorship maybe along the way as you've come up in your career. Who are some of the people that have been mentors to you? My mom, my old college dean, Dr. James Hawkins. There's a lot of older headliners that I've worked with along the way at different mile markers that helped, but I haven't had one sustained mentor-mentee relationship in my career. I've never had one single person I could call on. It's just been people from year one to year three. It was this. It was these people. Year three to year seven. It was these people. Year seven to year ten, and so forth and so forth. I think everybody that's more experienced than you, you stand poised to learn something from. So you just have to shut up and listen and observe, and then apply that to your own trajectory on the back end. And that's all I try to do: observe other people, and then try to learn through those examples or those mistakes. All right. So the last questions that I have for you are the questions that I ask every guest on Diferente. Say it with me. You can say it now. (laughs) Diferente. Diferente. So what is your passion is number one. And the other question is, how do you define success? Success is being able to help other people. You're not truly successful to your away. People think success is getting through a door. But I think real success is being on the other side of the door and opening it for someone else. So until you can do that, you don't really have any power. You've achieved something, but, you know, I measure success in your ability to help other people. And what is your passion? Learning, reading. I like stand-up. I mean, of course, I love comedy, but I'd be lying if I said there wasn't something to just reading and absorbing about other people's experiences and lives. I love autobiographies more than I like biopics now. I should like biopics, but now it's about people who are just so made out to be different. And they change so many of the facts that it's not fun to watch. But an autobiography, much better because it's from the horse's mouth. I really liked what Roy had to say about his definition of success. So it's not just about ourselves, but it's about opening the door for someone behind you. And that honestly is something that I hadn't even thought about. Sometimes we get so caught up in our own definition and our own purpose that we forget that part of what we're doing here in this world is serving one another. Like, think about what kind of impact you're leaving behind, because it's not just about you. Remember that. We're just a little speck in this universe. I want to leave you with a thought that I really enjoyed, something that Roy posted on his Instagram account that really resonated with me. Do not carry the burden of other people's disappointments. You've got your own shit to carry. I'm Maribel Casada-Smith. Tune in next time. Thank you for listening to Diferente. If you like this episode, let me know by leaving a five-star review and by sharing a screenshot of this podcast on Instagram or Facebook. Just don't forget to tag me at Adiferente Life so I can know you're listening. Hasta pronto.